Americans in particular have moved away from butcher shops where the animals are hanging in the windows. We want our meat wrapped in plastic so we don't have to deal with this. And the companies want you to have your meat wrapped in plastic because they don't want you to question whether you're going to eat it or not, right? Like they want you to drive through window, take the paper bag out and put that in your mouth and not think about what this is. So in the larger way, conscious consumption of our food in the face of everyone wanting you to eat more and more all the time so we can keep this economy going. I think that that that's a huge thing for us. And at the end, when you start unpeeling sort of the onion of this, the questions around food, at the heart of it is, will humanity survive? And unless we consciously consume, unless we turn this boat around in some way, the answer is no. Welcome to Care More, Be Better, a podcast for people like you who care about the social impact of conscious companies and everyday heroes. Hear inspiring stories from those who put people and planet before profit and personal gain. You'll learn how you can make a difference, vote with your dollars, and get involved today. Here's your host, Karina Belizzi. Hello, fellow do-gooders and friends. I'm your host, Karina Belizzi. Every week, I invite you to care more so we can create that better world together. Today, we're going on a global adventure as we connect with an actor, a producer. He's turned sustainable food advocate and author, David Moscow. David is the creator, executive producer, and host of From Scratch. He made his featured film debut at the young age of 13 in Big, starring as the young Tom Hanks. Soon after, he starred with Christian Bale in Newsies. He's appeared in dozens of films, television shows, and theater productions over the years. Most recently, he founded the production company Unlimited Pictures. That's U-N-L-T-D Pictures. He has executive produced more than 25 feature films, including Under the Silver Lake, To Dust, Strawberry Mansion, and Wild Nights with Emily. He also directed the thriller Desolation. He currently lives in L.A. with his wife and son, and develops mixed-income, sustainably green apartment buildings in New York City. So I'm definitely going to want to hear about that, too. David Moscow, welcome to the show. Hi, thank you. Thank you, Karina. Well, you get to see me in full branding regalia here. Today, I met it. I like this. And I like the color palette behind you. It's beautiful. The shirt, the coffee cup, I can send you one of these, too. <laughs> <laughs> But as it stands, I've been doing some live streams, some press events, getting in person with some really interesting founders. And so I'm encouraged that we're starting to open the doors, get back out there. And I imagine you are also starting to get out there, not only with From Scratch, the book, but filming new episodes of the show as well, right? Yeah, we're in prep for season three, which is kind of wild because I'm still on a book tour and we're still doing press on the book. And and so it is the juggling act. I have a little boy and now a little girl. And they, my son comes in and he's like, we should go to Mongolia. I'm like, oh, okay, <laughs> what do you want to do in Mongolia? So uh, it's kind of nice. I have like new teammates who are going to go along on the ride with me, which I certainly don't want to go around the world for the next year and leave my family at home. So I'm going to try and see how we can get them with me as much as possible. Well, my son keeps asking to go to China now, but I will say that I did have a little bit of that FOMO or jealousy, a bridge of the two, just going and perusing some of your content online and seeing some of the places you've been. You're not the only one. There's a lot of envy out there. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I was reminded of my episode with Chris Kilham, the medicine hunter, 
and some of the stories that he was telling about interacting with people in undeveloped part of the world or less developed, I should say, part of the world where the connection to food just is it's more like the childhood that I had where I would go and pick the blackberries from the rim of my horse pasture and get the eggs from my chicken coop than the world we live in today where so few of us have that experience anymore. Yeah. I mean, that's one of the reasons why the book started. There were sort of two things going on when the show and the book germinated. One was we had an election a couple elections ago where people were really targeting Central Americans, Mexicans in particular, and Mexicans happen to be the backbone of the U.S. food industry. They produce and serve and cook most of the meals that we eat. Just prejudices, people being more free with how they spoke negatively about this entire sector of our society. Agreed. It was really like a bubble that burst. And so I wanted to go and make a documentary series or a documentary film about sort of how you make a taco, how you make a margarita because I feel like food is inarguable. And I also thought that the sort of the hard work and the expertise it takes to produce food, to bring it to our plates would connects the community. And so that's what happened. And then we decided that it would not only be about tacos and margaritas, but we would jump week to week to different food cultures around the world to show the hard work and expertise. So that was one side of it. The other side of it is that I had grown distant from the food that I was consuming and I was sort of unconsciously consuming and felt like that did a disservice to animals that I was eating. Number one, we did like a thumbnail sort of sketch on how many animals. And if I ate two a day since I was a kid, probably around 35,000 animals that I had eaten. I had never seen them. I hadn't killed them myself. There was no relationship to that. And not only is it bad for the animals that I was eating, but also sort of the environment, the greater environment, like to sustain that amount of animals per person around the world does a lot of damage. And economically, cheap meat does harm to people. The, the people who raise the food don't get paid enough. I wanted to dive in and look at sort of how I was eating and look at how the world was eating and felt like it would kind of be an anthropological sort of experiment. Look at the, at the history of food, the future of food and where we are now. And that's where this show and, and book came about. Well, you're speaking to my heart here. I um, studied in my undergrad archaeology and physical anthropology and did a deep dive into zooarchaeology. I actually performed a dig in France that was an hour north of Paris in this tiny village called Longueuil-Saint-Marie. And it was this hunter-gatherer site from the Magdalenian period, 12,500 years old. And as we dug into the earth, what we were unveiling was this, it's a butcher camp, essentially, where they would intercept the migratory path of the reindeer that were crossing the Oise River. And because the Oise River had these gently sloping banks, the water each year would flood, just like slowly flood and put a layer of silt over everything that had been left behind. So it's incredibly preserved. The site had been dug at the time I was there every year since 1976 in the middle of this wheat field, right? So we would get down to the level and it literally looked like these hunter-gatherers just left. They just got out of here. And you could see where they had prepared the skeleton, well, the animal meats. You could find jewelry workstations, herds, fire pits, things like that. And so part of my quest, I think, has always been to kind of get back to this more direct relationship with food. I grew up a somewhat 
hippie-ish commune, two households next door to one another for my first few formative years. Yeah. And we had animals. My dad had, after we moved from that location to another one, still raised rabbits for food, chickens for food. We had asparagus and strawberries and some other fruiting plants and vegetables that I can recall, but not necessarily name. Mm -hmm. I think one of them was rhubarb, might have been chard, you know, like all these things that we did to stay really closely connected to food and also probably save money while (laughs) being able to live a little differently. And for me, I feel like that was such a great service from my parents. But now I struggle to help my children engage with food the same way. And so I feel like your book is inspiring me to want to get out there with my kids and help them explore food. One of the points I wanted to bring up, you talk about the potato and you bring it from Peru to Utah. (laughs) But the reason I wanted to touch on that is because I'd always just envisioned, okay, well, there's like 30 or more different types of potato that all basically originate in Peru. It's not the most nutrient dense food, but there are some potatoes that are better for you than others. And I just didn't expect the story to land me in Utah. So can you talk about that a little bit? There are 4,000, 2,500 of those from Peru and are basically the genetic basis for the majority of the others. We've sort of developed another 1,500 potatoes based on the original 2,500 from Peru. There is a separate species that is in the Southwest US and probably came from Central America. And we, the indigenous peoples here, I worked with the Navajo, the Diné is what they call themselves. The Navajo is what the Spanish called them. And this was a fundamental food for them. And it was when they were forced off their land and onto reservations, this food was basically taken from them. But what's interesting about it, there was a great restaurant in Utah called Utah. It's at this uh, really neat hotel called the Lodge at Blue Sky. And we went up there to work with this chef, Galen Zamora, who wants to use local products in his meals. And so we did this trout piscator, and then we harvested acorns to make an acorn bread. And then he was like, this would really pair well with this potato that the Diné are growing, but that had disappeared for a while. So I went down and met with the Diné and I met with a couple of professors from the University of Utah who had, in essence, all rediscovered this potato. So similar to your story in France, there is a site in Escalante Valley that has been lived in and around for 70,000 years and at various times by different groups. But it's at the base of a cliff and they were digging it out and they found these matates, which are grinding stones. And on it, they found carbohydrates, which they thought were going to be seeds, seed base. But it turned out that it was a starch. And the professor was like, what is this? They did eat acorns in Utah. In fact, this is something else I learned when I was making the acorn bread, that if you took all of the foods that humans have eaten across time and you put it on the table and you piled them sort of in relation to each other, acorns would by far be the largest pile of food on that table. That's what has sustained humanity more than any other individual ingredient. And they don't taste great. I mean, I don't know. I've never gotten to the point of actually making the cakes, but I've seen the preparation. It's time consuming. It's it's a pain in the butt. But if you have an acorn party, And you get everybody to help you. Like making tamales today. That's how people make tamales. They do a tamale party. Leach the tannins out. Exactly. Or pasteles on the East Coast, whatever. So that's what I wanted to do was get an acorn. I can't do it on my show. I just do it by myself, which is sad. But next time. So in this case, 
it was the two professors are married to each other. And Elizabeth, her husband, she's actually the one who was looking at the site. Her husband, Bruce, was walking around just hanging out while she was doing her work. And he passed not a hundred yards from where the Matates were. He passed this little sort of this little ground cover plant. And he was like, that's a potato. And so when I saw it, I was like, how the heck? And then he got down there and he unearthed it. And these potatoes are, we know the russet, like the big Idaho potatoes. These are like marbles. These are like little teeny marbles of nuggets of flavor. They don't cook, it's a lot to cook them down. So they always have, they feel like some give there. And he went back to her and he said, I think this is your starch. And then like good scientists, they sat there and argued all through the night over a glass of wine. And in the morning, they agreed that this was likely what that starch was. And once they realized, okay, it might've been a potato, they looked back through history of the Valley and they realized that around the Civil War, soldiers were calling it Potato Valley. And prior to that, there were records, I think like handed down, not written down, but tall tales told with Mormon settlers there that they survived on potatoes. And then going back and meeting with the Diné, there were rumors, the elders, the grandparents of today have rumors that their grandparents talked about a potato. So that potato is likely older than the Peruvian potato. Wow. They're not related and they grew separately. It is likely the oldest domesticated plant in the United States. It's such a mind blowing moment for me because understanding what it takes to figure out what plant something was from this historical perspective, they look at the patina, the finish on a stone tool or on that essentially the mortar and pestle style thing that you're talking about, where they would basically grind it right into the rock, like using some other hand implement. You end up seeing these depressions of the stone that don't look quite natural, but might if water had been there, if there'd been like a, an eddy or something, carving something for a long, long time but it's actually created from using it like a mortar and pestle. So they can determine certain things from that. Like if they're able to get any sequence off of it at all, they can tell that a starch might've been there, but they won't be able to necessarily pinpoint it unless they were somehow able to find it preserved. And of course, doing that with something like a potato is just not going to happen. I don't know of any archaeological record that has been able to unearth a potato from 12,000 years ago. Right. And in this case, it was just because... A hundred yards from the site, they found the plant. It's growing there. Mind-blowing. I mean, what a, the universe was shining down on them. And just talking to them about it, what a joyous moment it was for them. They knew that they had made sort of a real discovery. And then we went, so I couldn't harvest from that, from that site because it's an important area. So they took me to another site. And this is where the domesticated aspect comes in. There are lots of plants that were used, but to move with the plant and plant it someplace else means that it is now domesticated. And so it looks like the Diné were bringing it up from the South, from New Mexico and Arizona and planting it in Utah and Colorado, Nevada. And thus it was domesticated, which was incredible. And then we made this wonderful meal. So what does this potato taste like? It's really nutty. You know, potato is a hard taste to describe because it really just tastes, it's potato. Everything tastes, some things may taste like potato, but potatoes don't really taste like anything else. Uh, unless you add a lot of butter and salt, right? <laughs> it's a texture, sometimes more than a flavor too, right? Correct. But in this case, there is a little nuttiness to it because it is really, really tight. It's like, a, it doesn't get mushy. It's got a nice pop to it when you bite into it. 
and it can be roasted closer to being like a bean or a nut. And so I ended up, the Diné are now harvesting, growing it. It's back and they're selling it to fancy restaurants, but you can also purchase it online. And so when I got back home, I bought a bunch and planted them in my mother-in-law's garden and we cook them now. I highly recommend them with some salt. You should cook them in clay. This is another thing that's very interesting about potatoes is that because of wild potatoes are borderline poisonous. So historically in Peru, when you cooked wild potatoes, you would wrap them in an edible clay and put them in the fire. And then when they came out, you would eat it that way. And in, in act, you would actually ingest some of the clay as well, which was good for your digestion. You're talking about an unfinished clay pot, like something. This is actually like you took Chaco clay in Peru. And we did this when we were in Peru working with potatoes as well, because we were using Incan varieties that are five, 600 years old. And we would wrap them in this digestible clay and you cook it like almost like a ball of clay in the fire. Then you take it out, you knock off the clay and you eat it, but some of the clay sticks on it. And I don't know the science behind this, but I imagine we evolved alongside this and that clay is now healthy for us to digest. Yeah. So like bentonite clay, which is often used in filtration processes, is a very fine clay, can actually bind to things like heavy metals and things like that to remove them from your system. So I could see why. Similar too to like why some people would consume charcoal if they're concerned with something in their gut that's not doing well, <laughs> like if they're feeling ill, something like that. Interesting. What's cool is that not only did it happen in Peru, but the, at the same time, the Native Americans were not wrapping these potatoes in clay because they're too small, but they were cooking them in clay pots. The potato chapter is one of my favorites. Being able to go to cook with Virgilio Martinez, who is... I think his restaurant, Central, won second best restaurant in the world last year. And he does a tasting menu that is 17 courses and it's altitudinal. So it starts in Peru. The first meal is the coast. Then he goes up a thousand feet into the Andes. The next one, then another thousand. And he goes up to the top of the Andes, back down to the Amazon on the other side. And each meal, each little taste is its own magical, crazy dish. See, now I'm more jealous again. And I decided to get a guinea pig documentary to watch with my children. And then, of course, it all of a sudden goes to South America and starts talking about how guinea pigs are a food source. And then the next clip is like a guinea pig roasted on a stick. And my child's eyes got really big. And I'm sure he was momentarily traumatized. And so I'm having to say, well, honey, some animals were first raised for food and then would become pets. And a lot of it depends on the region that you're in. And you need something that's a protein source that isn't going to require a lot of nutrition when you're at these really, really high elevations. And so they've kind of evolved alongside humans the way dogs have evolved alongside humans. We just don't eat dogs, at least not in this culture. And then he's like, they eat dogs? People in some other cultures eat dogs? And I said, let's not talk about this right now. <laughs> I am a Matigui. Gui is a guinea pig in Peru, and Mata is the person who kills them. I had to make a meal with guinea pigs. I ate a lot of guinea pigs while I was there, particularly because it's a way that people show you respect and honor when you come and visit their home. They slaughter their guinea pigs and you have a big feast. And so anytime I was working with subsistence farmers, like quinoa farmers or potato farmers, they would bring me into their house and we would eat guinea pig. And then for a meal at a restaurant there, Gui was, was on the menu. And I like your kids had a guinea pig as a child. It was a pet. And so this was a traumatizing moment for me as well. Probably the hardest animal slaughter I had to do on the season. 
was the four guinea pigs up in Peru. Kudos to you for doing it. I've never had to, by my own hand, kill an animal. And I think that would be very, very hard. My father, my family, we raised rabbits, but for food, they weren't nice, cuddly rabbits. They were in the cages outside. And if you try to pet them, they'd bite you and it would hurt a lot. So <laughs> so you were okay with them eating those rabbits? <laughs> I never really saw it. They were just dispatched. And then suddenly they were now part of the enchiladas we would have or the stew. My mom's favorite thing to make with them was enchiladas. And then also being someone who studied French and traveled to France and did an archaeology dig there, a regional food there is rabbit. And they really aren't that different from guinea pigs. I imagine they taste the same, though I've never eaten one. Rabbit's a little better than guinea pig. <laughs> well, you're speaking from experience. I think that it would be interesting for you to... You still eat meat? Yes, I still eat some. Yeah, I mean, I think one of the things I... Across the two seasons that we've done, I feel like it's an important thing for people to, in order not to be hypocritical, to actually slaughter an animal if you're going to be eating meat. Because I think it's important. I think in the face of that, I have reduced my consumption of meat an incredible amount. Now knowing sort of the end of that is a living being that has sentience, some a languages. I slaughtered, we, we killed a pig and pigs are the smartest farm animal. And that was a really, really tough thing. So bringing this new consciousness back into my home, meat is not at the center of every meal. It wasn't dinner unless there was an animal on the plate before. And now it's very different in my house. We eat meat rarely and it's a special event. And my kid, he and his friends at school decided they were going to be vegan. And I think that's because of the disnification of animals, right? Like he doesn't want to eat piglet now. And so we're trying that for him. My older son is eight and he says he's a vegan, but then he'll be eating pork and say, so this is vegan, right? <laughs> he doesn't quite understand it yet. No, but you know, I think that this is an important discussion that we all need to have because our relationship with food has become so divorced. And so getting a little closer to it, whether it be fishing, raising animals and being involved in their dispatch in some way is I think healthy, personally, not something I have sought out. I have been present for the sacrificial style dispatching of a goat that was in pit roasted at a powwow that was multiple days up in the Oregon forests when I grew up there. So at a young age too, at a formative age, witnessing this whole thing from start to finish, which is probably somewhat reminiscent of some of your journeys where you're doing a more, you're preparing an animal in, in a more traditional way. And in this case, it was very much a celebration. It was summer solstice. It was around this time where everyone was coming together and sharing in this moment in time, this celebration. But I also did find it somewhat traumatizing at six years old. <laughs> but that's important. Yes. Yes, it is. It's important to respect where it comes from. There's a reason why we don't have Americans in particular have moved away from butcher shops where the animals are hanging in the windows. We want our meat wrapped in plastic so we don't have to deal with this. And the companies want you to have your meat wrapped in plastic because they don't want you to question whether you're going to eat it or not, right? Like they want you to drive through window, take the paper bag out and put that in your mouth and not think about what this is. So in the larger way, conscious consumption of our food in the face of everyone wanting you to eat more and more all the time so we can keep this economy going. I think that, that that's a huge thing for us. And at the end, when you start unpeeling sort of the onion of this, the questions around food. At the heart of it is 
will humanity survive? And unless we consciously consume, unless we turn this boat around in some way, the answer is no. We were talking just before we started this about the oceans. And I know you come from sort of the fish world, the seafood world, or as my mother likes to call it, the sea life world. She thinks that we should change how we frame the animals in the ocean, that we shouldn't call them seafood, but we should call them sea life. And that, that actually might change the way we view them and, and if we're down to save them. A couple of the chapters in our book, and I see it all the time on the show, are about sort of the total collapse of the oceans. I was in the Mediterranean going after a shellfish there, and the Mediterranean was never a very fertile sea. It's absolutely beautiful. Oh yeah. I mean, great to hang out. I'm in the middle of watching White Lotus on HBO. I want to go to Sicily. <laughs> but uh, we were down there diving for scallops and harvesting in Istria. We were harvesting clams and it was never a very fertile sea. It doesn't have a, any major rivers that go into it that sort of renew it. And it's been hammered by 28 countries for 10,000 years. And all of them, it's the tragedy of the commons. Like if Italy said a couple of years ago, Italy said, oh, we're overfishing the Adriatic side. Let's pull back. And so Croatia was like, oh, Italy's pulling back. We'll jump in there. And so you're seeing in the next 20 years, the Mediterranean is going to be empty. A similar thing is going on in the South China Sea. We went to the Philippines. I was making patisse, uh, which is a fish sauce. It's a fundamental ingredient in Filipino cooking. And we were using it to make a Philippine ceviche called Kilowin. And I went out on a boat, this banca, which is like a famous outriggers with the two sort of canoes on the side and the thin metal boat in the middle. And we went out, we went out all night and we went out really far and we didn't catch anything. And so in my mind, I was like, oh no, I don't have fish to bring back for my chef to make this for the episode. But I asked the fisherman sort of, was this common? And he said, yeah that his grandfather used to get a ton of fish and then his dad got a couple hundred pounds of fish and he goes out longer and further and does not sometimes comes back with nothing. And then when we dove into the research around this, it turns out that one third of the fishing boats in the world are in the South China Sea. It has lost 70% of its fish in the last 20 years. And there is a territorial dispute among the eight or nine countries that are there about whose rights this sea is. China is actually building islands close to the Philippines so that they can like call all of this their territory. And it's all for fish. And the hard thing is that because everybody is disputing the territories and there's such like everyone's hackles are prized and World War III could break out there over ocean territory, no one is able to reach across the dispute and say, hey, I know you think this is your ocean. And I think this is my ocean, but unless we work together collaboratively to save this ocean, there's not going to be anything for anybody. It's done. So now there are positive things coming out of it. And this relates to something that you, that I heard in your opening, which was how sort of how we can affect change and how sort of actually our wallets can affect change. So the Philippines has been working and in other places in the world have been working with marine protected areas where they sort of designate a certain area that you can't fish in. The fish reproduce enough and then overflow outside of that. And you can fish the outsides and about 30% of the world would need to be of the oceans would need to be marine protected in order for this to work. Right now we're at about 1%. Um, so we've got a long way to go. And to that point, they need to be 30% of the waters that could potentially flourish too, not just 
oh, well, we'll set aside the 30% that are basically dead seas at this point anyway. Right, right. I, I feel like it's not only that they need to designate it, but it needs to not just be on paper. There needs to be government backing. There needs to be protections. The local peoples need to have buy-in on that. So that actually means that you need to have economic, you need to pay people not to fish for a little while. You need to make sure that they have alternative uh, careers that you can start. One of the positive things about a marine protected area is then it can become a, a tourist destination. The corals come back. And so governments need to get behind this. Now, the Philippines is just starting to, and the reason why is because the EU has voted that they will only purchase sort of sustainably caught fish. And the Philippines wants to sell to the EU. So now the Philippines is developing marine protected areas in concert with universities and nonprofit organizations and local governments with buy-in from local people. And that's so they can sell sustainable fish to Europeans. So as Americans who consume the most of any country on the planet, if we can really push for sustainably raised foods, also humanely raised foods and foods that are produced by paying people a living wage, we can have a real effect on how things are grown and consumed. So the Philippines is a possible solution to the problem that we see everywhere. And to your point, as we look at this overall picture, what we do see is places where people are following Michael Pollan's recommendation to eat mostly plants and then really start to look at proteins from animals as a side dish, something that's small. If you think about Asian cuisine, it's something that's mixed into the stir fry, but it's not the primary portion. To change and adapt how we think about our food sources, there have been movements even to do things like look at crickets as a protein source because they can be humanely dispatched simply by freezing them. And then they automatically just go into their slumber and then moments later they're dead. It's it's quite simple actually. But I don't know very many people who have actually tried crickets or even the cricket proteins that have been on the market. They We aren't as likely to want to go to them as food sources, at least automatically. And so if we are to consider the future of food when we aren't looking to the ocean, I do have a couple of things to say about that. I mean, I spent 10 years working in the fish oil industry. I've spent a fair amount of time in Arctic Norway and working with people from Scandinavia where fishing is so endemic in the culture that they can't picture a world without fish in it in any sort of way. It's just this is what you do. You consume these fish. They're part of culture. They have fish row in tubes that look like toothpaste tubes. They have canned fish. They have fish in all these different preparations, whether they pickled or dried and then reconstituted like the Spanish bacalao, which is simply dried cod. Salted cod. That is insulted. Yeah. I mean, it's salted in the marine air. They don't even actually salt it when they set it out to dry it. You just hang it out on these things that look like skeleton teepees in a way, right? <laughs> there is the idea of crickets as a future food source. And in a way, if we don't change our habits now, that's something that we'll have to look at. But we have the capability, talking about sort of Scandinavia, you know, Finland and Iceland and Norway have, they were all at the precipice of wiping out the North Atlantic fish stocks and they figured it out. So Iceland knows how to manage its fish stocks in a way that they're all doing really, really well. And that only changed recently as, you know, as late as the eighties, they were wiping out the cod. I think in the seventies, they almost wiped out the herring, but they changed it 
So we have the capability. We're, we're not at the point yet where we have to eat crickets. I talk to people who talk about sort of like, oh my goodness, there's the population is too much. And, I'm, and frankly, the West is declining in population. And the areas where there is sort of population growth, you know, Africa is very underpopulated as compared to many other places in the rest of the world. We have the capability with the technology and the knowledge that we have now to feed the planet. The main issue is that we are wasting a ton of for capitalism's sake. Everyone is racing to eat as much first. This is a controversial idea, but part of that waste is our waistlines because we overconsume. We consume more than we need. Very true. Yeah. Right. America is it's hurting ourselves. We are hurting our health with how much we sort of overconsume. But we have the knowledge if we become more thoughtful about it we can fix this. And that's one of the things I saw across all 20 episodes. We, I left the Philippines where, so the destruction of the South China Sea is putting pressure on the, the fishing communities in the villages. So those people are then moving to Manila, destabilizing Manila because there's a lot of people in there. There is no infrastructure. There's no jobs. So it's a lot of poor people moving to Manila. Crime rates go up alcoholism, drug use, suddenly you start electing fascists and dictators destabilizing the country. And that's what we've seen over the last 10 years in the Philippines. If you go to Iceland instead, or Finland, Iceland, well, Iceland has a different problem. So they were able to figure out how to save their fish stocks. And that was by giving everybody a catch limit, a permit. Every man, woman, child, and company has a, an amount that they're allowed to fish. The negative that they did was those fish permits could actually be bought and sold in a marketplace like the stock market in essence intended and those permits drifted up into the pockets of about eight to ten families who now own all the fishing rights in all of iceland which also emptied the coasts because those fishing rights these families they want everything to be concentrated they don't want to have fishing villages all over. They just were like, okay, the boats go out here and they come back here and everything's processed in this one place, right? So after the economic collapse in 08, the Icelanders voted to have a new constitution. And part of that, and what's wild is they this was a, a crowdsourced constitution, which kind of worked. And part of what they wanted was that the fish stocks would be nationalized again, that they wouldn't be owned by these eight families. And the constitution worked really, really well. I think overwhelming majority, 70 to 80% of the country voted to ratify the constitution and it was never ratified. Still sitting there waiting because Congress won't meet around it because these eight families are still fighting to own the fish rights, even though the rest of the country said, no, we're going to change the way we own these. You can rent from us, but it'll still be property of the state. No country is politically perfect. Let's just put it that way. <laughs> <laughs> the closest you get is Finland. <laughs> I have a really great chapter in the book about Finland, which was, it's just an amazing place. There are some niggling issues there, but generally they're doing things right around food, around their society, how they see nature. It's a pretty awesome place. Now, I mean, there are companies out there that are certifying specific fish as being sustainably sourced. They'll say things like, look for the blue label, Marine Stewardship Council, or Friends of the Sea Certified. And I have some reservations about these certifying bodies, especially after spending the time to watch a film called Seaspiracy. I was already aware of some of the challenges. Is that, is that on Netflix? It was on Netflix, yes. And it did feature the Sea Shepherd, which is no longer affiliated with Captain Paul Watson, 
Captain Paul Watson has his own interesting relationship with the Scandinavian peoples because he tries to thwart efforts to whale and they still like to whale. But you see in that detailed some of the challenges around these certifying bodies because they don't regulate, they just observe. And it's not like they have patrols out there that are policing whether or not these areas are fished. And to your earlier point where you have different countries vying for a particular area, a particular fish stock or resource stock, it could be any resource stock really, then you will have some sort of piracy. You will have people coming in illegally and fishing for the fish that they're working to get. And then you have the situation where the local fishermen are having to go further and further out and brave bigger oceans and bigger waters to try and find the food source that can feed their families and provide some livelihood. So we're in a position, we're in a place and time where we do need for the Captain Paul Watsons who are going to be out there and kind of fighting the good fight and putting their own vessels out there to kind of police these waters and and try to instill some sort of regulatory system to prevent the bad actors from taking hold and then ruining it for everybody. It's a big moment in time. This is like, I go back, will humanity exist? We need to be talking about major structural changes. I went down to Costa Rica and Costa Rica is another really positive story. What would your country look like if you didn't have a military? If you weren't spending (laughs) over half of your economy fighting and killing people, what would you do with that, right? And Costa Rica is an amazing example of positive things. It's the most successful Central American country by far, literacy-wise, health-wise. There's a lot of expats that are moving down there, including Dr. Paul Saladino, who is trying to put this carnivore diet out there, which is probably the reverse of what either you or I would advocate for. I don't know what that is. Oh, it's a new thing. And carnivore to basically not consume plants. Is it like Atkins, basically? No, no. It's like eating organ meats raw from animals, choosing only, let's say, grass-fed or naturally-fed animals. So like responsible husbandry, like the middle of this thought process. Or mostly eating just meat. Healthier meats, but mostly meat. And then no vegetables, some fruit. So the fruiting bodies of things, because we're intended to eat these, but not the types that are considered nightshades. So no potatoes, no tomatoes, no eggplant, like all that, right? So their diet to me seems like one of the most boring things you could could consider. They also don't want you to even use certain spices with the meats, like pepper and some other interesting herbs and things like that. I'm like, gosh, this diet would be the most terrible, most boring. No, I love food. I know. I love food too. I ruin food. (laughs) Food and sleep. As a parent, all I have is food and sleep. Come on, leave me something. So the things that they will eat outside of that, at least the Paul Saladinos of the world, and he's a medical doctor. He's like reporting all these health outcomes from this that basically solving people's metabolic challenges. That's at the center of it. And some autoimmune issues, which I'm sure on the short term would be true, but I'm sure you could also address it in other ways by you know, moving through your diet in a different, less carnivore intensive way. Cut back the overconsumption. Go out and take a walk. Like I was in, we were in Kenya, you know, the Maasai are nomadic pastoralists and they eat about 50% of their diet is local grasses and, and plants. And about 50% is blood and dairy. Mm-hmm. 
and there's no heart attacks. They're in, there's no cholesterol problems. There's like no cancer. Like it's because of this nomadic pastoralism where they're basically walking all day and they're not over consuming and they're not walking around at 70 degrees all the time. Like we, in our lives, this goes to a larger discussion of like, the more we make things easier for ourselves, the worse it actually is for our body. Like, remember the movie Wally, Wally, where everyone's like lying around in those things and sucking and they're floating. And that's where we're trying, that's where we're moving towards. And it's idiocracy, the film. Like, those two things are seeming more and more like reality. Well, the Wally end is the worst possible thing we can do to ourselves. Turn your thermostat down, stop eating as much, go out for a walk. Like, we know, we know the answers at this point. But to go back to, we were talking about, I don't know what we were talking about, but this is good. (laughs) (laughs) We get lost in the details here. Lost in the fray of it. Well, we have been going for about 45 minutes and I feel like I could keep talking to you about these things because these are, well, I live and work in this space. I've taken a bridge away from fish because of my concern for the health of our oceans, Mm. because of rising acidity, because of, because of, because of, and and we could talk more deeply about that on another podcast I host when I invite you to come on Nutrition without compromise because I think we could really dive in there. But I am just thrilled that your show is getting airtime, that you have this book out there because these are the conversations that we need to be having. We need to be thinking about our relationship with food. I know I need to take off a few pounds and I've been thinking about my consumption of everything from, hey, if I'm drinking wine, what went into the production of that wine? What waste is the bottle that I'm then putting into the recycle bin? really trying to think through all of these things and and get to a space where I am just reducing my consumption overall, drinking more water instead of going to the Starbucks and picking up something that tastes good. Like we need to get more comfortable at, to your point with discomfort, my daily hikes with my dog, getting outside, even if it's raining and just putting a big coat on to enjoy the fact that it's raining because, hey, we're in California. It doesn't rain enough here, right? Take it in. That's our one weather change. That's like winter. We get we get wet. I miss the East Coast. I miss the snow. Anytime it gets cloudy and gray here, I get pretty excited. I want to give your book my full endorsement. And I'm just going to read the full title to everybody. I'm holding it up for those of you that are watching this. But from scratch, Adventures in Harvesting, Hunting, Fishing, and Foraging on a Fragile Planet. I would love to know from you if you could just share with our audience the best ways that you want them to find this book, whether it be on your website or whatnot. And also any news you can share about From Scratch, the TV show, and how they can find it. Well, you can go to discoverfromscratch.com, but it's also at every, at your local bookstores on Amazon. We just became a national bestseller, which is it's so exciting. And we didn't expect it. And we're the number one travel book in the country when we came out and, and we just got a book deal for a number two. I co-wrote this with my father because he's a writer on the show with me. He studied anthropology. So that that's his background. And um, a lot of the research I'm out on the road, I'll be like, Hey, we've found out about this. Can you dive in? And then he would come back and be like, so it was a magic experience to write it with my dad. It's fun to be able to call him up every morning and be like, Hey, you didn't send me that email that you said last night. Can you please send it to me? (laughs) (laughs) The tables have turned and, uh, but it's been an amazing experience and we're going on this book tour together. So we'll actually be in the South. We're doing Austin, NOLA, Miami, DC, and then Louisville, and Nashville in the beginning of next year. 
but yeah, your local bookstores, Barnes Noble, Amazon, you can go check it out and discoverfromscratch.com. And there's lots of, aside from sort of the dire warnings of the end of the world, there are amazing adventures in there. You know, I hike to the top of the Andes, go into the Amazon to make chocolate. Um, I dive in Iceland for scallops and uni, hang out with the Maasai across uh, Kenya, making this phenomenal goat dish. Yes. So there's a lot of fun and interesting people that I meet along the way. One of the things also about the book is I'm not an expert, but I talk to a ton of experts. And so I let them kind of speak through the pages. So there's a lot to learn there. Yeah. Well, what I will say is I've been going page by page and I'm about page 94. So I was so tempted to jump ahead to your chapter on Iceland because I work for an Icelandic company called Vaxa Technologies. I've worked to commercialize their omega-3s from algae as Orlo Nutrition. I spent a long time selling fish oil and specifically cod liver oil. And that chapter is titled Cod Scallop Salt Iceland. So I will get there by the time that I bring you on to Nutrition Without Compromise. Iceland's a magic place. It's probably the most dynamic environmentally and weather-wise I've ever been. Like it was just wild. And um, there's a neat history there. A lot of their food and energy choices came from the fact that when the Norse first got there, they chopped down all the trees. And so there was no energy. To make all the ships that they might need. <laughs> That's right. That's right. And then they were like, oh no. And they almost died out. In Greenland, they did actually die out. But in Iceland, they figured out a way to survive. And we dive into that in the book. And it has to do with food. Well, you know what? I'm looking forward to it. And I will say when you come this way up to Northern California, or if I find myself down in your neck of the woods, I'm going to bring my book and have you John Hancock it in person, because I think this came directly from your PR agents. And I've just so enjoyed it this far. And thank you for coming on the show. I'd love to hear what you think when you're done. Let me know. Yeah, I will. And I'll definitely write a review for you. This is a note for everybody here too. If you're listening to the show and you have bought a book that you absolutely love, please, please, for the author, write a review on Goodreads, write a review on Amazon, and write a review on Barnes & Noble. Those three spaces are all critically important for a book success, especially if it hasn't yet reached the bestsellers list like yours has, because otherwise people won't discover it. And so the more reviews we get, the better the algorithms post us higher on each of those websites. That's right. And then suddenly you can have a book that might not have gotten legs because it didn't have a ton of press behind it appear in front of somebody who just needed to read that information. So if you love a book, write a review. And I would also say that for the podcast you listen to. If you love a podcast, write a good review. <laughs> write a review on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, wherever you listen, even Spotify these days, you can just tap on it and give it five stars. And that can be its own form of payment. If nothing else, it makes the host of the show or the person that's putting it on feel really good. So if you're listening and you like the show, please do that for us too. Well, thank you so much for joining me today, David. Any closing thoughts, anything you want to say before we part? No, this was lovely. And I'd love to hear, I know you have your other podcast that you've invited me to, and I can't wait to chat with you there. Yeah, that'll be amazing. And I'll give you five stars. Hey. <laughs> <laughs> I love that too. Well, this has been probably one of my favorite episodes of the podcast ever. I had intended to ask a couple more questions of David Moscow about some resources I've found over the years, like Ethan Welty's fallingfruit.org. But I'm going to go ahead and save those for the next time that we get to connect on Nutrition Without Compromise, because as it stands, I could have talked to him for hours. 
This is just such an important topic for all of us to think about as we seek to build a better world. We want to be connected to food, to family, to our love for adventure. We want to be able to explore the world and try new things. And I believe that this book from scratch helps you do that. It helps you think about what you might want to do differently. It helps you think about the places that you might want to visit and the adventures that you might want to inspire for your loved ones, for your family, for really everybody in your life that you hold in value. Now, I really just want to say how much I have appreciated his time, his effort. I'm looking for that show and I know it will be available in the coming months on other places beyond simply, well, discoverfromscratch.com. And also, of course, you can find some clips of him on YouTube. I've seen a few other interviews where he tells his stories, and I know he has so many more to tell. As always, you can go ahead and review complete show notes, including transcripts on caremorebebetter.com. I will be sure to include a link to a couple of interviews that he has done that I personally found quite insightful and amazing too. So you can continue on this journey with the amazing David Moscow and his work from scratch. Thank you listeners and watchers now and always for being a part of this pod and this community, because together we really can do so much more. We can care more, we can be better, and we can even get more connected to our food and create a better future. Thank you. Thanks for listening to Care More, Be Better, a podcast for social good. To make sure you never miss an episode, subscribe, rate, and review wherever you listen to podcasts. And share with your friends to help us reach more people and spread more social good.